gentlemen, welcome to the fourth episode of The Way I See It, the fourth scheduled episode, that is. Uh, I'm here to provide you with your current event summary and commentary from the perspective of someone who is a part of Gen Z. I'm your host, Roy Beals, and today we're going to be talking about the aftermath of the events at the Capitol building last Wednesday. Now, I posted a an episode last Wednesday sort of about my immediate reaction to that uh, but I figured it would it would also be worthwhile to make a more well thought out episode sort of talking about what has happened since then and sort of what all of it is is meaning. Um, so just to start off with a little bit of a summary since uh, since last Wednesday, which obviously was the insurrection at the Capitol, call it a coup, call it a riot. Uh, it was pretty bad. So what's happened since Wednesday? Um, well, there's been a lot of people calling for uh, Trump to be pulled out of office, whether that's through the 25th Amendment or uh, drafting impeachment documents. I know that the House of Representatives has already done that, and uh, it's, it's sort of going through that process right now. Along with all that, there's been lots of resignations from within the Trump administration, a couple of aides, a couple of people in his cabinet, uh, all resigning after these events. Uh, along with that, there's been a lot of other people in Congress coming out against Trump, not necessarily calling for his impeachment or for uh, utilizing the 25th Amendment, but people sort of uh, talking against him off of the role that he played in in the events on Wednesday. Um, and so regardless, the people who are doing that uh, are, are, for the most part, Republican senators who are sort of trying to make a big deal about I look down on these actions, and I think this president is not doing a great job. And that, of course, has prompted a lot of people on the left to be angry with him for supporting him in the first place. And then at the same time, uh, they are also getting lots of flack from the right because there's a lot of very pro-MAGA people who uh, are sort of looking angrily towards these Republican senators who are now coming against their president saying that they aren't patriotic if they can speak poorly of Donald Trump, which is a whole issue. Uh, apart from that, he got banned on pretty much all social media, uh, in particular the most important one being Twitter. Uh, that was his main connection to the outside world, and now that's gone. So I haven't heard from him at all, which has been pretty nice for me personally. <laughs> um, along with that, Parler got shut down. That was an application, uh, a social media site f where it was – pretty much entirely Trump supporters talking about conspiracy theories. And that's where a lot of the planning for Wednesday's events happened. And so uh, all of the all of the operating systems on phones have sort of banned them from their their app stores. Uh, and so that that app has has been effectively shut down. And uh, of course, there's been lots of shade being thrown on social media towards these, quote, patriots. On, on TikTok, on Instagram, on every social media site, people are angry at them, making fun of them, uh, calling them traitors and insurrectionists, which they deserve to be called, and just general anger towards these people, as you would expect. Uh, meanwhile, some of them are sort of proud of what they've done, saying, yeah, we fought to take our country back. That's more than you liberals can say that you've done. Um, and then there's also a subset of them saying it was actually Antifa who did the attack uh, to make these, quote, patriots look bad. Uh, and they have really no evidence to back that up. Uh, but evidence has never really been important to these people. So that's where, sort of where we're at 
since Wednesday, and this is a very interesting and intense situation with a lot of implications and ideas uh, able to be drawn from it. And I wanted to focus on three areas where I, I saw some pretty important ideas to think about. And the first of those is the policing of this event, the preparation beforehand, what was happening during it, and now sort of what is happening afterwards. And I just want to start by saying that anyone saying that the police weren't prepared because they didn't know what was going to happen uh, is either really, really dumb or lying because there was tons of warning about this happening. Through TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, on Parler, there were tons of posts of people saying, like, wait until January 6th, then we'll show them. And a lot of the people who were in the Capitol flew from all around the country, showing that there was a lot of preparation for this in advance. And uh, anybody with a social media who pays attention to the politics side of social media could have seen that happening. And I think, most importantly, the U.S. government would have been able to see this happening. Regardless, at the actual event, there was a very small police presence with no extra security beyond the Capitol Police. And I didn't know how significant that was, but I saw uh, one reporter, Marcus DePaula, he is big on TikTok for his political reporting, but he also uh, is works with MSNBC and a few other news outlets, I believe. Uh, but in one in, at one moment where he was being interviewed, he said that he's been to a lot of these D.C. protests and is used to seeing Secret Service and extra guards around Capitol protests. But this time there were none, which was very jarring to him. So obviously this is a very out of the ordinary type of situation and something that was really just poor planning on the people in charge of security guard uh, in charge of security for this event. Um, and because of just the obvious oversights that occurred and just neglect to their duties that somebody had in terms of planning for this, there's been lots of finger pointing going on in, in sort of the higher levels of policing. I know the chief of the Capitol Police resigned after these events and lots of people uh, sort of working with the U.S. defense is, you know, saying that it's not my fault, it's this person's fault and so on and so forth doesn't really matter at this point they all sort of screwed the pooch on this one uh and so as the evening progressed obviously the national guard did end up coming but not because trump called them even though he said he did that does not seem to be the case from people uh, talking in washington the secretary of defense said that he spoke with uh, pelosi pence mcconnell schumer and hoyer uh, about getting the national guard there he did not mention speaking with trump which makes sense because I think Trump was rather a fan of what was happening, which is tough. And so that was sort of the the preparation of for this event. Uh, but the response of the police who were there was equally, if not more stunning. I think there was just a total lack of responsibility for the officers there. I did see one video of an officer who was uh, very intelligently like, angering a mob to sort of lead them away from a, a section of the capital that had yet to be secured. So props to whoever that was. But I think for the most part, the police there did not do a very good job. Uh, I know some took selfies with the terrorists and some were seen helping them down the stairs away from the capital, holding uh, a woman's hand. Uh, regardless, somebody still did get shot by the police. Um, 
However, she was given ample warning. According to witnesses, the officer said that he would use lethal force if she came through the window that she was attempting to climb through since it was uh, a room full of representatives and workers at the Capitol and she went in the window anyways and got shot, which is tragic but shouldn't have been all too surprising. And so all of this is sort of stunning in the way they handled it, but the bigger issue that is is obvious here is how this all compares to the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer where there was just a tremendous amount of force with so many officers present, so many militaristic weapons, tear gas, all of those things uh, in, in these at these protests, and none of them were trying to take over the Capitol. Yes, there was violence at some of these protests, which is bad, but that violence was done out of frustration over centuries of racist mistreatment. Wednesday was simply a case of extremely bad sportsmanship because they didn't want to lose the election, one that has been shown to be fair uh, with no fraud that Biden rightfully won, they're unhappy with, and so they stormed the Capitol and were almost welcomed inside, as opposed to the thousands of individuals across the country who wanted to protest against police brutality towards people of color and they were getting, you know, hit with riot, riot shields, rubber bullets, tear gas, all of that. Um, and going back to the actual election being fair, this is just something that I saw data-wise that I think is, you know, a good addition. Is I don't understand how a lot of Trump protesters, like pro-Trump individuals who say he won the election, think that that makes sense logically. He never had an approval rating over 50% his entire presidency. The polls before the election showed Biden crushing him, which didn't happen. Uh, but regardless, he was very unlikely to win based on the polling. And he didn't win the popular vote in 2016. So coming to the conclusion that, well, Trump won, so there must have been fraud. I, I don't see how the data works there. But as I said earlier, these types of people don't really do the whole evidence thing. But back to my main point, which was that these people were treated with very little violence in comparison to the Black Lives Matter protests. And the argument is that we, that the argument isn't that we want the police to shoot and kill all of all of these people because that's that's not what we want. We want the police to not shoot and kill all of the Black Lives Matter protesters. Similarly, to how they they treated these white protesters at the Capitol. At the same time, though, don't give the white people a pass, which I think is slowly being taken care of. I know there's been a lot of arrests since this event because there's no shortage of social media footage depicting the people who broke the law, and hopefully all of them will come to justice. Uh, so that was sort of my thoughts on the policing aspect of that. Um, my next reflection sort of focuses in on some of the cultural implications that this event has and has, has shown me. But before we get that, I want to take a quick break to do something that I've been planning on doing that should be a little bit more fun and lighthearted. Like many of you, I'm sure, I get stuck in musical ruts sometimes. I listen to the same three songs over and over again, and I like them, but it just doesn't 
feel very entertaining and I get sort of bored of the music that I'm listening to. So at the beginning of this year, I decided that I was going to listen to a new album every week, and that was sort of an individual thing. And then I realized, oh, this could be a part of the podcast where I take a quick two minutes to talk about the album that I listened to and how I felt about it, potentially bring in people some new music to listen to. So that's what this section is going to be. And for the first album, uh, this was recommended to me by a friend, and that is the album Evermore by Taylor Swift, somebody who I like but don't listen to a lot. And overall, I thought this album was pretty good. I gave the lyrics an 8 out of 10. I think they were solid and emotional, but nothing mind-blowing. The vocals, got to be honest, I don't love Taylor Swift's voice. Uh, but she did sing pretty well, and also Bon Iver was in there, and I do really love his voice. So that sort of evened out to a 6.5 out of 10. And the instrumentals, I gave an 8 out of 10. I liked the vibe. It was sort of that like indie pop quiet emotion like quiet but strong emotion that you feel in the forests kind of thing and so that appealed to me and so overall rating seven out of ten pretty solid album i liked it i don't think it's you know one of my absolute favorites uh that said my favorite song on the album was the one that either was named after the album or the album was named after this one and that's the song evermore feed bon Iver. I do really love that song. That song gets like a 9.5 out of 10 for me. Uh, so that one I really like. So that's how I felt about that album. Feel free to go on my Instagram and leave a comment on the post talking about this episode of the podcast to leave a recommendation for the next album that I should do. The Instagram is at Twizy Podcast. So that's at T-W-I-Z-I Podcast. That's the initials of the way I see it. Uh, I like saying Twizzy. I think it sounds fun. Uh, but yeah, go recommend an album if you think there's one that I should listen to, and maybe it'll be the one that I review for next week. Anyways, back to the actual body of the podcast. The next area where I think you can draw some interesting conclusions from the events of last Wednesday was sort of culture and society in America, which is something that is particularly interesting to me at my age because I don't know how society quote unquote should be. This is just like everything that's going on. It's the society that I've been a part of as I've been growing up and learning how to operate. So I think it's particularly interesting looking at some of the stuff going on right now, knowing that that's sort of how normal is in my mind. I mean, all of these actions are just sort of like, oh, yeah, that's how people act around politics, which I don't think has been historically the case, but I wasn't there to know. So in terms of that culture, though, some big issue that I see is education and the fact that this whole thing probably came about due to a failure of education. And in that mind, that means being educated either incorrectly or incompletely. And by incorrectly, I just think that some areas around the country don't educate their students on the, the truth or maybe the full truth. In particular, I don't trust Civil War education in the South. I have never been to school in the South. I don't know anything about schools in the South. But I, I think knowing about sort of the Daughters of the Confederacy and the impact that they have had on the way history has been taught in the South... I think that there is maybe not the same amount of 
completeness about their civil war and slavery education that, you know, other states would get. And that sort of propagates a renewal of racist beliefs in that area. You know, I imagine if you live in the South and you are taught growing up that slaves actually weren't, you know, that poorly mistreated. I've read some of the examples of Daughters of the Confederacy textbooks, and they'll talk about how the slaves sing songs in the fields and they enjoy their lives and they're treated like family, which just isn't true, but that's what potentially people in the South are being taught. So then when you hear, you know, oh, we need to do all this affirmative action stuff for the the sake of, um, you know, paying for slavery and helping to sort of equalize all races in the country, then people might be upset and take a stand against that and bring out their Confederate flag and bring it into the Capitol building. That's sort of where I think that that all originates, um, just sort of poorly being poorly educated on certain topics that, you know, relate to race. Uh, also, I think that some a lot of places, and this this isn't really relegated to any specific location. People are being educated incompletely. Uh, a lot of the people drawing up the curriculums around the country are people who are potentially older and sort of out of touch with what it means to be younger. But we live in a very interesting age where there's so much stuff at our fingertips and at our phones and we could call it information but a lot of it just isn't true i mean you have apps like parlor and social media apps which may skew your political beliefs and i don't think that there's enough education protecting against that sort of educating people on how to sift through online information and stuff that may or may not be true and just sort of being taught on how to know which pieces of information we should accept as true and which pieces we should push away from us knowing that those are damaging and untrue. So that's sort of my thoughts on education based off of all this. Um, I also think that this situation highlights sort of what we value as a society, uh, sort of in the sense of like, look at the politicians who have sort of facilitated these events to occur. And these politicians are the ones who have the ability to lie to gain power or get it taking advantage of others, being good enough with words to confuse people into believing them. And so I think that we have to reevaluate the types of people we reward with power, in particular in politics, so just being, again, more educated on who you're voting for. So I guess, again, it, it sort of boils down to education. And we also have to reevaluate the types of people that we reward with money. Uh, this goes away from politics. Uh, but buying off of Amazon, you're just funding Jeff Bezos to continue to be way too wealthy and doing nothing with it. So buy local. That's my little buy local pitch. Anyways, back to sort of culturally, politically, what can we do to fight all of this? And I think it's difficult to, to do because it feels as though we're very powerless in the sense of, you know, we're not the ones making the big decisions, but it's more important than ever, I think, to get our voice heard. And with the internet, as much as damaging as that can be, there's a lot of good options for that. Uh, you know, we can find petitions online that we can sign. We can find organizations that we believe in to donate money to. And when 
you have the chance to speak up against poorly educated or simply incorrect opinions, do so. Make your voice heard and make a difference. Uh, and as little as it seems, it could potentially lead to something bigger. Moving beyond culturally and sort of individually, what is the problem? There obviously has been a large problem with the government role in this whole situation, you know, stemming from the president of the United States, basically inciting this mob to go and attack the Capitol. And so obviously there's a large problem with the people that we have in government. You know, they are the ones that have the values that I aligned just a second ago. So how can they be good representatives if they're just going to lie and cheat their way to the top and then make good decisions for us as a society? I just don't think that we can place trust in those sorts of individuals. And so we need to get different types of people and potentially better people into politics, because right now I don't think... There really are a ton of outright morally upstanding individuals in politics. So there needs to be ways for the better people to get into politics and the people who won't just, you know, cheat people to get into positions of power. And I sort of brainstormed a few random solutions. This is coming from, you know, a young person who is very idealistic at how well these things would work. But I think there is some merit to the ideas that that I've thought of. And uh, the primary idea is just to add term limits to senators, representatives, and even Supreme Court justices, sort of putting a time cap on their service in the Supreme Court. And this way we can cycle through people who may have different and better ideas that we can try to employ to improve our country. The representatives in this case may actually reflect some of the changing and modernizing ideals of the country as we go throughout time, instead of people like Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell sort of being in power of their respective area of government for, you know, 15 plus years where I think American ideals 15 years ago aren't what they are or aren't what they should be now at the very least. And I also think that this takes away some power from the president, which obviously, given how influential this past president has been, might be a good idea because they can't intimidate the representatives into bowing to them in order to get their support for their next election. If there's a term limit, a senator might be more willing to speak against their president, even if it's part of their own party, because that president can't then go to the community that that person represents and say, hey, don't vote for this guy, because maybe they're done with their their service anyways. And you know, they have a little bit more independence uh, away from the president. And also a president can't put in a justice who will be in the court for, you know, like four plus decades longer, where again, I think, you know, the ideals of the country is an ever shifting thing. And maybe having really old people who still have the same beliefs from 30 years prior should be in charge of making very important decisions. Obviously, that's coming from me as a very young person who sees you know, just an overwhelming amount of 75 plus year old people in politics who I don't really believe represent the things that I care about. Uh, other than maybe Bernie Sanders, he he speaks to me. But other than that, I think a lot of the really old people just don't agree with a lot of the younger people in this country on what we should get done. So I think term limits could help improve that situation. And then another thing that we as voters can do is just be more responsible in who we vote for. 
And I don't just mean what I said earlier about educating yourself on the presidential nominees, you know, sort of the senatorial, the House of Representatives people, not just them, but also on the local level too. Local elections have such low voter turnout. Uh, but if we were to be more engaged in those local elections and sort of do research on those as well, you're going to be giving, you know, meritable people a way to work their way up the ladder because I think especially in local elections it's whoever has the most connections and is willing to sort of cheat their way into it the most they're the ones who are going to get the most votes because it's such a small voting pool to begin with uh, and so maybe really meritable potential politicians just aren't getting into the very local level and without getting into that local level it's very difficult for them to get into a national level of politics where they could make uh, important decisions for the sake of the country. So improving voter turnout on local elections and at the same time being more educated in those elections uh, as well will be pretty important. And hopefully these ideas could potentially improve the people that we have working in our government and representing us as people and minimize the risk for anyone like Trump to ever again come in and completely dominate the political landscape as he has done. Speaking of which, I do have one random political hot take that could be so far off, but logically this is the thing that makes sense to me. Um, you have the Republican Party, but there's sort of two sides of the Republican Party right now where you have the Trump-looking party, who are the really MAGA people who don't care about being Republican, they just care about you know, following Donald Trump. And so that sort of splits the Republican Party right now uh, from sort of moderate Republicans to those far-right people. And so I think there's this potential where we're going to see moderate Republicans shift into the Democratic Party, like the uh, one senator from Alaska has said that she plans on doing. The moderate Republicans might shift into the Democratic Party, and slowly the sort of Trumplican party will fizzle out as Trump hopefully disappears from any public minds, uh, and that will that party will sort of fizzle out. So there could be some Democratic dominance as, you know, more central Republicans shift into Democratic ideologies and voting on party lines for that one. So there could be this sort of Democratic dominance. And then I think after a while, we could potentially see people like AOC and other progressives like the rest of the squad uh, maybe create a separate, more progressive party. And, you know, becoming the liberal party while the Democrats would become the more conservative party. Um, and that's just something that I can see potentially happening, uh, primarily because obviously there's a huge split in the Republican Party right now, which creates opportunity for that shift into the Democratic Party. And then on the Democratic side of things, the squad and central Democrats have quarrels over stuff all the time. You know, the defund the police movement was sort of a big part of the debate. There were some moderate Democrats who were angry at progressive Democrats for making the Democratic Party just seem very radical, which potentially lost them elections. So there's sort of this quarreling between the two subsets in the Democratic Party as well. So I just think there's some room for this to happen. And party changes have happened before. They can happen again. Uh, we're obviously at a very important section of politics and political changing. So that's just sort of a random idea that occurred to me. Uh, with that in mind, though, I would like there to see, 
I would like to see more than two parties in the future. So it's not just, oh, the progressives become the next progressive party and then the Democrats become the next Republicans. And then we're stuck with the same two party system. I don't know how we shift away from that, but it would be nice to shift away from that. So all of what I've said during this episode has been kind of depressing because it seems like there's so many problems that need to be fixed. And a lot of them are sort of out of our range of being able to fix them as individuals. Uh, so I wanted to end with a little bit more of a positive note about some conclusions that can be drawn. And this is obviously a very optimistic sort of stretch of logic and reasoning, but I think optimism isn't always worthless. And so something that I noticed over this whole process uh, is that the separation of powers, one of the founding principles of American democracy, it kind of did its job. You had a president who wanted to maintain his status as president uh, by sort of inciting a mob and attempting to intimidate people in the legislative branch to do that for him, even though he was voted out of office. The will of the people was to get him out of office, but he wanted it, so he was trying to get it. However, the judicial branch obviously shut him down. The few cases of election fraud that went to the Supreme Court were sort of shut down. So the judicial branch shut Trump down in that sense. And then also, obviously, we've seen the legislative branch vote to uphold the electoral college votes. So they have also done their job in preventing the executive branch from sort of becoming this dictatorial area, allowing Trump to do whatever he wants. So even though things went very poorly and it's been very violent and very unpleasant for anyone who pays attention, even a tiny bit to politics, the separation of powers has in a sense, you know, survived this really big test. So that I think is one positive conclusion that you can draw. Thank you for listening to this episode. It's a bit longer than usual. I had more to say than usual. It's a big issue. Uh, sources today used uh, NBC, NPR, and Newsweek, uh, as well as Spotify to listen to the Taylor Swift album. So yeah, once again, feel free to go to my Instagram, find the post about this episode, and leave a potential suggestion for what album I should review next week. Thank you everybody for listening. I will talk to you guys again 